Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and today we have a great episode uh, with Rob Owen on the podcast. Uh, several of the listeners had asked me uh, to try to get him on, and I did manage to, uh, to get it done, and it, uh, it's a really good one. Um, if you don't know Rob, he's got an incredible backstory. Uh, he had a brief but uh, very you know, pretty decent uh, professional career. And then, uh, then he decided to leave squash for a little bit, and we get into get into that. And then uh, he got into the coaching side of things uh, after a successful time uh, there in the profession, professional gambling world. So uh, you'll get to hear about all of that on on the podcast today. And we all know how uh, successful he's been with his current group of players that are playing out of his uh, academy, the Rob Owen Academy, uh, the likes of Sarah Jane Perry, who's currently number six in the world and number two uh, in the race to Dubai standings, George Parker, Joel Macon, all of whom uh, have been having a, a very, very good uh, start to uh, the 2018-19 uh, campaign. Uh, you'll find uh, today, you know, Rob's not uh, afraid to tell it like he sees it, and that's uh, that's great for for us because we're all about the content on the podcast, and it was really, uh, really entertaining stuff, really good stuff, really insightful as well. Uh, a lot of talk about squash and the way he sees uh, things, the way they should be, the way um, he sees things going forward in terms of his uh, coaching academy, the players that he brings on board and the world of squash uh, itself. So I know you're going to enjoy this one with, uh, with Rob Owen. Now just to um, recap what's gone on over the past little while uh, on the squash scene, uh, congratulations to Renee L. Willeely. Uh, she was, uh, I believe, episode 57 recently on the podcast, and uh, congratulations to her. She's regained the world number one ranking. And Kareem... Uh, Abdul uh, Gawad uh, winning in Pakistan over Diego Elias at the Pakistan Open and Yathri Abadal winning on the women's side so uh, those are the uh, newsmakers I guess you could say on the PSA squash scene Um, at any rate episode 59 with Rob Owen all right welcome to episode uh, 59 of the in squash podcast and today uh, we have one of our uh, one of our most uh, asked for podcast uh, guest Uh, he's a former world top 20 player. Uh, he has a win actually over Jan Khan in the under 19s at the British Open. Currently runs the Rob Owen Squash Academy, which includes uh, the likes of S.J. Perry, George Parker, Joel Macon, amongst others. Rob Owen's my guest today. Rob, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here, Jerry. It's been a long time. You've been chasing me for about a year or so now, and you've eventually <laughs> tracked me down. I relented. Uh, it's great, great to have you on, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. Now, uh, you you were a bit uh, under the weather there uh, a few weeks ago. How are you feeling these days, and how are things uh, just generally at, at the academy going? Yeah, it's going very well. We've, we've been very busy. We've uh, got a lot of players, and obviously, as you know, I've got 11 players, and there's always people in there. I've had Ryan Koskelly here this week, actually, um, doing some things with me training before he goes to Egypt, so that's been great. Great fun. Ryan's a good friend of mine. He's been on with all my players, so... That's fantastic. And obviously there's people away. I mean, I've got four five players away this weekend playing tournaments and there's always something going on. So it's 24-7 really. Yeah, must uh, uh, the season's gotten off well for, the, for a lot of your players at the, the academy. Uh, you've generated a bit of momentum there. How, how does that feel going forward for uh, the rest of the season? Yeah, it's a great start. Um, you can never rest in your laurels because there's always something around the corner that will happen. And you've got to enjoy these highs, I think, because um, there'll be a few lows. 
Um, but I mean, generally, it's been amazing, really. Everyone's doing incredibly well. Um, but what people see, Jerry, is the tip of the iceberg. And you know, you've got to realize this is four, five years, six years hard work to get these guys to where they are now, some of them. And people to see the end product. And you know, we've been working hard for a long time to get to this stage with a lot of these guys. Yeah. Now, uh, Rob, if we could take a look back a little bit at your, your playing days, um, you describe yourself, you uh, self-described average junior player until uh, I think you, you met uh, Jonah Barrington. Now, how, uh, how did that meeting uh, with Jonah come about and uh, what did it do for your game at the time? Um, I'm not sure I ever described myself as average, Jerry. I think that's a bit harsh. Um, but uh, no, you're right. I wasn't uh, the best junior. I was, um, uh, that that was. I, I thought you that was self-described. I I I have no uh, no knowledge of your junior career. I thought. Yeah, thought no, I, I don't. I don't describe myself as, as average at anything, Jerry. Um, if you get to know me better, um, <laughs> quite wrong in most cases, of course. But um, no, I I I didn't play a lot of squash when I was very young. These days, people tend to start a lot younger, obviously. Um, but it always makes you laugh when people talk about players being average. I remember people saying Nick, Nick, Nick Matthew was a very average sort of junior. But I look at his record and the guy won the British Junior Open. So right. it's crazy, really. He's, he's obviously a fantastic junior player. I was nothing like knowing near as good as Nick when I was young, for sure. Um, but you but did have a win over Jan Shokan. Yeah, I, I, look, that was in the British Junior Open um, under-19s. And I got the final of that, um, which is nice. But in the under-16s, I'd lost first round. So uh, there's a big improvement. And you're right, that was that period that coincided with me meeting Jonah. Um, I'll give you a brief insight into my early days before meeting Jonah. I think that probably had a major influence on both my squash and my gambling career. Um, at a young age, I was a pretty good sort of uh, chess player. Um, I was studying off school's chess champion, um, which is an area here in Warwickshire, a big area. Um, and chess is something I, I really loved. Um, and to me, it's the only game or sport with absolutely no luck in it. Game grind, great patience, a lot of skill, discipline. Um, and you, of course, it involves thinking in several moves ahead, which is very much you know like squash really. Um, try to think opponents, which is always the way I try to play squash. I'm not lucky enough to play the world number two men man at the time, Nigel Short. Um, that's about 38 moves now and a half with him. So I was a decent sort of okay. chess player. Mm. And then at 13, 14, I started enjoying my squash a lot. Um, and something had to give. Chess is very, very time consuming. You play the clocks and you play a match, then you have to go back the next night and finish it off and all this sort of stuff. Um, but at that point, I was playing the a really small club called Nolan Dorridge um, near where I live. Just a two-court facility. I used to have to walk out to courts. And I was the best player there by a mile. But I was just basically practicing on my own. Um, and I was doing well locally. I was, I was winning all the junior stuff locally, but not really doing a great deal. And just sort of practicing myself, really learning my technique and things. Um, and then the chairman of Jonah's Club, which is West Warwickshire Club, where we train now, rang me up and offered me a membership there. Um, so, so I went down there about 15. Um, I just watched Jonah play and practice and, you know, I just got talking to him. I watched him every session he did. There was this young lad up there just watching him, watching, watching, watching all the time. And he took me under his wing. Um, and then he sort of had an injury. I think I was about 15 or something like that, 15, 16. He had an injury, which meant I could go on court with him. Um, so we could play condition games. And as his injury got better, um, my squash improved and we progressed to normal games, really. Um, and I improved rapidly and, you know, as I say, when I first met him, I was, I was okay, but um, I probably would have you know, had some sort of England ranking and I was decent, but I hadn't really played in tournaments. And then I think I won the Warwickshire men's close at 17, which was quite a big thing. I beat some of the world ranked final. And then I won the juniors in the same year. And then I, in the 19s, I got the final Christian Open. So I spent a lot of time with and around Jonah. Um, I guess his work ethic uh, would have rubbed off on you quite a bit, eh, Rob? 
uh, it was extraordinary. Yeah, the, the moment he was extraordinary. I mean, when I met him, he was he was 30, I don't know, 37, 38, and 39 years old. He won the British men's clothes, beating, uh, I think he played two hours of semi final, beat Phil Kedgen, who would have been top 10 in the world standard, and he beat Gawain Bryce, who was seven, six or seven in the world in the final, which is extraordinary, really. I mean, Nick's doing something similar, really, I suppose you could say, at 38 years old, there is. Um, but I mean, he's just, you know, he's just incredible. He's an incredible man. I mean, and I love the history of the game. Joe to talk about everything. Um, I think these days, young kids generally don't know about the history and the traditions of the game, which I used to love all that stuff. And, you know, I want people to remember. But Jonah was the greatest squash player I've ever come across. You know, and he's, he's probably the only squash player, Joe, I think, to ever transcend the sport. Um, and I've watched an enormous amount of sports over the last 40 years, and what I've done in my work and my gambling. And I've still yet to meet a sports person or person as much knowledge about squash or sport generally. So, yeah, he was fantastic to be around. And I used to listen to him for hours and hours. You, he's so charismatic. He just sort of, oh, yeah. I could just listen to him, you know. I've always enjoyed learning off people and skills and resumated. Well, know, we talked a little bit them. earlier about, uh, uh, we'll talk about it later, about his commentary on squash TV. And that was something, I mean, I could listen to him just talk about squash for hours too. That, that, that was just uh, amazing stuff from him uh, as a commentator. Yeah, he was a great commentator. He, he can walk in a room and, um, you know, I remember doing clinics and stuff and, uh, We'd still be there talking to the cleaner at one o'clock at night, and people just mesmerised, you know. And he'd just go on and on, talk and talk. It was never boring. It was always interesting, um, and you'd always be learning off him. Just being around the guy didn't have to be on a squash court, you know. I could just watch him play himself. I'd just be around him, talk in the change rooms, and probably spent hundreds and hundreds of hours just, you know, either at his house and talking to him, or and it was, it was an amazing sort of education for a young young player. And I was pretty obsessive. Um, and I love squash, which is obviously critical to being a good player. And I learned an enormous amount of him. And really, the, a lot of the, the principles that I give to my players, the way I teach them, is it's really come from Jonah. Um, you know, I'm not going to pretend it's from me. A lot of it's from Jonah and other people I've learned off, which is how it should be. Well, uh, now you parlayed that into a, a fairly decent uh, professional career, reaching the top 20 in the world. Um, but you decided to quit. Uh, at a relatively young age, and an age pro, uh, that many people are in their primes at, at the age of 26. Uh, what what uh, led you to retire from, from pro squash at, at that point? Um, there are a number of factors, Jerry, really. Um, I guess I originally played squash because I had an ambition to be world number one. Um, and I was playing in a very strong era, and I pretty quickly realised, probably at sort of 22, 23, that there were four or five players that I simply wasn't going to beat. Um, you know, it was it was in, you know obviously the Carnes, two Carnes were playing. You know, Rob Martin, Dick Mar Robertson, spring to mind particularly. Um, and I never I could have trained twenty four hours a day. I would never have the physicality of those guys or have the ability to beat them. And that's why I played the game. Really, you know, it wasn't about the money. And I don't think anybody goes into squash um, looking to make money out of the game. They look, they do because they love it, they have a passion for it. And that's why I played. Um, and I'd achieved the top twenty ranking. And if I'd hung around for another four years and dedicate myself to sports, I probably had a good chance in hindsight against at least 10 or so because people dropped out, Changa dropped out, you know, Rob Monk. And there's also several people I was playing with ended up finishing top 10 players I, I, I was beating, you know, or had beaten. Yeah. Um, but to be quite frank, it didn't really, and this might not sound good, but it didn't make a difference to me looking back if I was 12 or 19 in the world. That just didn't interest me. I wasn't bothered about being 12, and I wasn't bothered about being 19. You know, I sort of thought I'd failed a little bit. Um, and I also felt for the last two years of my career, I was just drifting um, and playing and not really doing myself justice. I wasted my ability to a certain extent. I was enjoying myself, but not enjoying the squash side of things enough and not working hard enough. And I wasn't um, prepared to accept love myself. 
I'd lost a bit of direct, direction. Um, and again, in hindsight, it was early to retire, but I had a lot of ambition in other areas, Jerry. And yeah. I wanted to have success at other things, and that wouldn't have been possible if I'd carried on playing squash loss, 34, 35. Um, and at that stage of our careers, there weren't the coaching opportunities there are now. And again, to be quite frank, there weren't the financial incentives for me in coaching, and I knew I could do very well pursuing other areas. Right, and and that led you to uh, getting a degree in in optics, and then uh, parlaying that somehow into a very uh, successful gambling career. So, looking back um, at this stage in your life, did this stage uh, in how did how did this stage in your life play out that way from uh, studying optics and becoming an optician for for a certain amount of time, and then uh, getting into the professional gambling side of things, where you were very very successful. Well, I think um, all of us are probably influenced by their parents a little bit. And my father was, uh, he's a very intelligent man and a uh, great supporter of me. Um, and I think he'd always probably wanted me to go to university. Um, you know, I don't think anybody sort of dreams their, their kids are going to be a sort of squash players and things. And my sister went to university. She became an optician. My father was an optician, had his own practice and stuff. And she was the same. And so that was an easy route to go down for me. Not easy, but it was something that sort of fed into a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoyed college life. I met some great people. And it was very nice to use my brain in a different way. Um, I kept in touch with my squash friends. Um, I played Surrey League, a few matches. Um, and at university, I met a guy called Rob Wright, who was the, he was the tipster for the uh, Times, a very famous paper in the UK. Um, and we were great friends. He, he loved squash, racing, and drinking. And I was good at all three of those things. Um, <laughs> so, we, so we got on famously. Um, and I learned a huge amount about, off him about gambling. Um, I probably didn't learn as much about gambling at university as I did as... I did about optics, um, which ended up being very useful. And then I met several other people in racing and became friends. And like anything, you tend to make, make friends with people with mutual interest, don't you? Oh, yeah. um, I, I then worked in a practice in Birmingham with my father, um, which I enjoyed, uh, which was interesting. And then I eventually bought my own practice in Birmingham. Um, and I, again, I enjoyed that. It was great fun. You're helping people, you know, doing that sort of thing. It was nice. Um, but I also still had a passion for sport. And I was gambling more and more, and I was, you know, I was, I was doing pretty well, really. Um, and it got to the stage, I was probably making as much as a month gambling as I was working my own practice in a year. Yeah, so it was, wow. that, became, that became an easy decision to make. Um, yeah. plus, plus, it's a very competitive thing. It's very much like playing squash or anything else. It's a competitive thing. I loved it. And I was also very good at it. I had a knack for it. And uh, I had an ability, and it would have been a shame to waste that ability. Um, so what, what's the skill set involved? I mean, for, for any sort of amateur punters, I, I guess I, I, I'm one of them. I, I, I've got football games on the go tonight. I've got a little, little uh, NFL football uh, on the go tonight. What, what, kind of, what skill set did you bring to the, do you bring to the table as a successful uh, gambler? I guess it's just knowing the numbers. Well, to a certain extent, but I mean, there's lots of things you need. Um, and I think the success you need as a squash player, as a gambler, as a businessman there, there's similarities in all these things. You meet, I mean, through my gambling, I've been a lot of very, very successful people. And they all have similar skill sets, Jerry. You know? I mean, first and foremost for gambling, you need a good brain and be able to react and think very quickly under pressure. Um, and that's, that's a big thing. I mean, because you can't work under pressure. And that's the same with squash. Yeah. If you can't work under pressure and make quick decisions, you're going to struggle straight away. So is, that, is that something you try to implement in your coaching with your players as well? I mean, Massively, yeah. Massively. Yeah, yeah. I work out percentages and odds and opportunities. You know, what's, what, what's the chance of playing this shot, that shot? That's all about working out. Um, you know, if I play three wall boats in it, they're pretty almost certainly going to cross court. I hit it, I'm going to play down the wall. Um, so that's patterns of play. And that's very similar to gambling what I do. It's trying to, when I look at a race, I'm trying to work out how the race is going to run. It's, that's the first thing you need to do. Um, you have a lot, number of imponderables. 
and you try and turn that into probability, um, particularly in something like racing where you might have six runners. Are there four front runners? Is the two held up? Is it a strong pace? Is it a slow pace? What are the jockeys like? Is it drawn well? What's the ground? The breeding? There's a lot of imponderables in these things. You've got to work it out. Um, so that's very important. But I mean, there's other disciplines with gambling. You can't chase losses, for example, um, although most people have at some time or another. I've met lots of really good gamblers who are brilliant when they're winning and they're just rubbish when they're losing. Um, because they, they, they keep winning, 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 and also they were losing today, and they lose everything they've won, plus more. So, you know, don't get me wrong, I've had a few days where you just, you know, probably chase a little bit, even if you don't admit it to yourself. Um, but you have, if you're being realistic. But generally, I'm very disciplined. Um, so what, uh, for, for amateurs like myself, uh, what, what should you do when, when, you, when, you have those time, when you have those moments where you, you just keep losing? What, what's take a the, break. Take, take a break. break. I mean, you don't have to have a bet. I mean, there's another day. I mean, that's the thing with gambling. There's so many bets you, bets you can have. Just take a break, stop, have a think about it. And I can guarantee once you start losing, you'll generally continue to lose. It's as simple as that because you just do bad bets. Yeah. Um, you, know, you, can't, you, you can't chase losses. You know, you need to have a, a lot of attention to detail, probably exceptional attention to detail. Those are small things that other people wouldn't. Now, when you're sort of losing, you don't do those sort of things. You know, you also can't afford to be black or white in your views. And that's something I find with a lot of people. They're very black and white. Uh, with gambling, you can't be that. You have to have a view, but you have to admit when you're wrong. Get out of bad bets and learn from that. You know, look at both sides. And I mean, I've saved myself a lot of money getting out of bad bets. Um, so I might be losing a few quid and then I end up losing nowhere near as much. So I've got out the bet and maybe back to the team or, you know, got out my bet in some way. So I'll end up losing a little bit, but I would if I kept the bet, I would have lost the whole, the whole lot. Whereas when I'm winning, I might, I might have more than when I'm winning. So, I'm, you know, it's about maximizing your profits and minimizing your losses. Yeah, so again, it's the, the old cliche, know how to cut, know when to cut your losses. Uh. Yeah, and also, I mean, I only have a bet if I'm completely odds are wrong. You know, if you give me heads right. or tails now, Jerry, you offer me two to one heads, I'll take it. I'll have as much time as I can. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm, be, I'm not saying I'll be right. It might, it might not be heads, it might be tails. But, I mean, over a period of time, I will win. Um, and that's what I've always done. I, you know, I try and bet when the odds are wrong. and I've got a decent margin on my side. This way, that's why I've always won over a period of time. You know, um, and that's made a big difference for me, you know, and I can relate that to sort of um, my squash as well. You know, millions of people gamble, the vast majority lose. Um, and there's not, even of those that win, there's not many that make a good living doing it. Um, but I mean, it's, so there is a skill to it as well, but it's, there's a number of different things like anything that uh, go into making a successful gambler or sports trader, really. I'm, I'm not sort of, I'm not gambling. I don't think myself as a gambler, Jerry, because I'm not really gambling because I always win. That's not gambling, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Uh, generally, generally, with any over a period of time, I always win. So that's not gambling. But uh, I find it interesting how, uh, in terms of uh, applying it to, to uh, what you're doing with squash as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I use that all the time in daily life. I, I use that in everything. I think without realizing, everyone uses sort of uh, odds and probability. You know, when you go up in a helicopter, you think of chance of survival, wherever it might be, anything, you're using probability. Um, and I've just applied that successfully to a career in sports trading if you like taking bets putting bets on and also my squash you know it's and that you know, apply it to so many aspects of squash and it's something that very very few people do i think you know look at look at it that way so that's gonna be a huge advantage over other coaches particularly yeah for sure um now now eventually uh getting into squash eventually you found your way back into uh, squash after uh, I, and you're still doing some gambling aren't you uh, you're still involved professionally I um, yeah nothing like the volumes i used to do i mean i was turning over you know large sums um now it's you know i just do a little bit um because i can't because i don't do the research i mean when i was gambling I, it really was i was full-time job yeah i was on the, me and my mate Anthony ramsden who's a lovely 
bloke. You know, he's I did a lot with him, and he's a he's a very famous sort of gambler, and he's 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 done very well out of it. But we were on the phone in New Zealand, Australia, and you know, on the phone all night, and we we're just twenty four seven. It was just very very intense, high intensity when you're gambling. Um, you have to have that. If you lose that, it's same as squash. You lose that intensity, you're stuffed. You know, you just can't do it. Um, well, so you have to have that high intensity. Well, you found your way back into, into squash again as, as a coach. And uh, I was just wondering uh, how this came about and when did you realize uh, that you had uh, a talent for, for coaching, which you obviously do, given uh, um, what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I probably got a talent coaching about 30 years ago, Jerry, to be honest. I was um, talking to players then and people always, I was always very good tactically. Um, so I knew I was going to be good. Um, I read the game well. I understood different techniques and I could analyze things very well. And that's, again, that's part of the gambling thing. I was also a quick learner. So I knew I was going to go to coaching. To be quite honest, I looked around at what was out there and I thought the general standard of coaching was terrible in the UK and possibly even worse abroad. I mean, most coaches either haven't played at a very high level, they're not very bright or just simply don't understand the sport. Um, and I think you've got a lot of coaches who've played a bit of squash and couldn't make a living as a player, so decided to go into coaching with a couple of certificates which weren't really worth the paper they're written on. That might sound harsh, but that's a, that's a fact. There's a lot of garbage out there. I mean, they, they tend to latch onto an idea or read a few intellectual books. And then they yeah. think they're a great, they're a great coach, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's a difficult thing being a good coach, you know. It's it's very very difficult. There's so many different aspects to it, you know. Um, and again, a lot of these coaches, they've been serious. Someone who they think's a great coach, who actually wasn't a great coach, it's pretty average. Then they believe everything they've they're told. They misinterpret that, and it's even worse than the coach they got off originally. He wasn't any good in the first place. Yeah. So um, there's all sorts of people out there, you know, masquerading as coaching, not just squash in all sports, in all, in all in business as well. And then you've got some ex-pros and people who played at a high level. But, and there's, again, there's some really good ones, some average ones and some really bad ones. Um, I think it helps having played a lot at a high level, but it's not a necessity. Um, no. like Malcolm Wolstrop, who I've got a great respect for. Um, he hasn't played any sort of level, really. Um, but I've got an enormous amount of respect for him, both as a person and what he's achieved with squash. And I, I do love some of his basic principles. I think there's things I've probably, me and Malcolm may well disagree about. So, um, with ball striking stuff, a few little things, but basically we'd agree on most things. And I think his basics are really, really good. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he's done, always amazing. He's done really well. I mean, look, James's game is incredible for a guy that yeah, that big to, to play that well. And, and the game that he has is, uh, and he'll be the first to tell you it was his father uh, who, uh, who led him down that road. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've known Malcolm a long time through Joan, and I've always liked him. Um, and a lot of people probably think, well, me and Malcolm are sort of guys that might not go on, but he's got another racing, the same as me. But we actually got on really well, and the guy's misunderstood. He's, he's got a fantastic sense of humour. He's a highly intelligent chap, um, and he's got a lot to offer. You know, he still has. Um, and he's produced some great players. Uh, and that's not luck. You can't keep producing good players by luck. I mean, some of his players have been elsewhere for bits and pieces. You know, they might have spoken to Jonah and, you know, um, Camps have done a lot with James and this and that and the pressure stuff. But, I mean, fundamentally, they've been based there and he's done an amazing, amazing job with them. Um, yeah, just wondering, uh, um, just to get back to the coaching thing, what uh, ultimately what led you back into uh, to getting into coaching after being away from it? Well, first? I, 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 I guess the fundamental thing was I actually missed the squash a little bit. I've been out for a little bit. I've done other things. I've, I've made a, a little bit of money doing my gambling stuff. So I was... Financially, I was pretty good. Um, I didn't need to coach for money or anything like that at all, but I actually just missed squash. And I still had a massive passion for the sport. Um, and uh, a guy called Chris Ryder, actually, um, I was watching him do a clinic, I think it was. And he was sort of hitting some back on something. I sort of said to him, and 
you know, and that, that, you can probably do that a little bit better than that. Just, just do it like this. And he obviously looked at me and thought he was this fat bloke telling me how to hit a ball. And <laughs> he sort of said, well, you show me. And I, I ended up doing a little bit better than he did. And he said, oh, I like that. That's not bad. So he said, can I have any chance a lesson? So we had a lesson and uh, it kicked off from there, really. And we, I started seeing Chris every day. And he was a very interesting character because he was latter stage of his career. And he was basically a bit of a runner. Um, and he was he just wanted to change the way he played. He wanted to change his technique. He wanted to learn to hold a ball, to attack the ball, um, hit a lot more winners. Um, and he was fantastic. You know, he, he changed his technique quickly. Everyone ever worked with, really, because he wanted to. He bought into it, and he quickly learned to hold a ball, open racket face, have the same swing for several different shots, uh, which is probably the best form of reception, Jerry. Um, and that sort of thing, you know. So I was working on a daily basis, really enjoyed it. Um, I never intended to go any further than that, just helping one player. Then all of a sudden, a couple of other guys approached me um, who saw me, Chris. And we sort of started having two or three players and there's four and it just sort of snowballed really. And it's snowballed for something I never really intended to. Um, so it's been brilliant. So I've, I've loved every minute of it. It's great. I mean, sometimes it's a commitment and I'm there every day. And obviously there's that commitment. When I do something, I do it properly. And, you know, I make sure that I'm, I'm not just, it's not just that time on court. I'm speaking to players off the court on a daily basis. You know, I took four players, four phone calls today off players. And it's just talking to them, mentoring them. It could be anything. Uh, not always about squash and that's to me is really important it's getting to know that individual um, so it's not just that hour or two hours on court that we teach them the, that it, it's the mental side of things as well which is equally oh. important well uh, it's obvious that your players have a, a great deal of respect for you I think it was uh, SJ uh, Perry after uh, our podcast she just said I'm going to try to get Rob uh, on your podcast she <laughs> She says you'd be great, and uh, as she, I think she helped uh, get you uh, to where you are right now. Uh, what uh, not only SJ, but you've got uh, Joel Macon, George Parker, uh, amongst others. What's it been like uh, working with these uh, this new young group of uh, very talented players, all of whom se- seemingly have uh, different games and different uh, personalities? Yeah, I mean, look. The first thing I've got to say is I've got about eleven players. I mean, I've got. Um I've probably got about uh, six full-time players, what I call full-time, who are there every day just playing squash. And then I've got another sort of five or six that are um, either at school, college. I've got Jan, who's doing a PhD. Um, Stuart McGregor's at the university still. Katie Malik, who's a, who's a great young talent. So I, I love coaching. She's a young 15-year-old girl. who's going to be very good. Sorry, what, what was her name again, uh, Rob? Uh, Katie Malik. Okay. coaching over 12 months now, and she's improved hugely since she's been here. Um, mm-hmm. Lewis Anderson, who I've just started coaching, he's at he's at college. Um, he's got the British uh, British clothes final. Um, he's got another chap called Jack Turney. Um, he's a nice lad. He's uh, he's working uh, as well and playing some squash. And my six full time players, I've got SJ, um, Joel Macon, um, George George Parker, uh, Josh Masters, who's been here since about May June. He's improved in that period. Charlie Lee, who I've loved working with now for a few years. I've coached him for about seventeen. He's a, He's been a very good player. He yeah. keeps himself fit. Uh, and a young lady called Jazz Hutton, um, who could also do very well if she if she sorts a brain out. Um, but I mean, there are three talks about. I'll, I guess I'll talk about those. Um, uh, SJ has been great to work with. I mean, that was interesting for me because the first time I've actually inherited a player who's been a top ten player. So the first thing I have to say is obviously she's worked with uh, other coaches um, who obviously did a good job with her. Um, and she had, you know, she was 26, I think, when she came to me. Um, so she was already a very good player, but I, I saw straight away, you know, there's weeks in the technique, um, which to a certain extent was eradicated. Um, and she hits the wall long consistently now. And the technique doesn't break down under pressure. You know, swing is straighter, 
shouldn't hold and flick all the time. Um, but she's been a joy to work with. You know, she's got great attention to detail. Um, she's, a, she's a highly intelligent girl and a great thinker. I mean, possibly thinks a little bit too much sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, her fitness and intensity improved. And she's just a better all-round player. I mean, you've seen that consistent with the results. I mean, her fit, I mean, she looks very, very fit this year, uh, even more so than last year. At the, at the start of this season, she looks like she's put in uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of hours uh, over the summer. Yeah, well, I've, I've done a lot of work there. She's done her movements, just um, getting a bit more balanced. Um, so she's in a better position to hit two or three shots. She's much more stable on the ball. She's not doing lunges all the time. And also her movements become more economical. Um, that was very important. Smoother and more economical. So she wasn't just sort of charging around. And she was a bit of a bull in the china shop at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she just, her ball striking better. So, of course, she doesn't have to move as much now because she's putting the ball in the right areas in the corners. So yeah. the girls can't move as much. So she's volleying more. Um, there's lots, she's lots got, of she's got great hands, eh? Uh, for, she's got great hands. Yeah. She's always had enormous ability. Um, but sometimes she wanted to do too much. And just a simple shot was the right shot. You know, you didn't, don't have to hit cross court and hit to the back, you know, cross court drop shot and things like that. You can just hit a simple straight drop with the girl stuck behind you. So we worked a lot on that. And I've always, I've loved her flair and imagination. I'll never, I'll always encourage that with any of my players. Um, but there's a time and a place for that. Mm-hmm. I think that consistency and just that structure, particularly that SJ has had, has been a big help to her. Um, and we have a great relationship. We've done very well. I talk to her a lot. Um, there's a mutual respect, and I've got great respect for her, what she's achieved. And, you know, without doubt, she, she's capable of winning a, a world championship or a major event. I mean, she's, she's won a title this year. Yeah. Um, she's beaten everyone in the world. It's, it's not easy. Um, and for her, it's about consistency, you know, winning three tough matches in a row. But, you know, she's had a couple of semis, semis of Hong Kong, beat Shabini. Well, I think she's, uh, she's number two in the, uh, the race to Dubai uh, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I went to Dubai with her a um, lot last year, the year before, and, you know, okay. she was really impressive. I mean, she was yeah. very unlucky. She beat Nicole and she beat Shabini there again and still didn't get through the semis. But, uh, well, you, you should, know, you should go this year, Rob, if, if she makes it. Well, she pays me, pays me to go. I will. I'm not to pay myself, <laughs> but I'm going to cost me a fortune. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it's expensive. And it's Ramadan, which wasn't ideal. Yeah. But, uh, no, great fun. I mean, she's a, she's a good girl. I've thoroughly enjoyed working with her. And, uh, like you say, she's very different from someone like George I mean they're opposite ends of the spectrum um, <laughs> and George is a great character you know I've, I've I had George inherited George when I was 17 he sort of came to me he was recommended by somebody I can't remember who um, some crew so he's been with you for quite he's been with you for for a while since yeah. he's a junior okay I mean, so you have, you have a special bond with him I would imagine yeah I mean I, I guess I, you know, I, sort of, I sort of follow the figures in squash terms to him I mean he was 17 he was a, he was a rebel um, to be quite honest I saw a lot of myself in him Jerry mm-hmm. um you know, he had, he had disciplinary problems, which I had at a similar age. He was anti-authority, which I was. Um, but he came along and he saw me hit the ball. Um, when he first met me, I think he thought, again, he was this bloke. And when I caught me, he saw me hit the ball, realised he hit the ball a lot better than he did. Um, and I was doing things that he just couldn't do with the ball. So, I, And he respected that. And But we also got on great. We had, a, we had an immediate sort of um, liking for each other. Um, and there was respect. And I liked him a lot. What you see with George is not necessarily what you get. Um, you know, he, he's a lovely lad and he's a very generous character. Um, and I just understood what made him tick. He's a loyal guy um, and you need to know how to get the best of him. England squasher had him and they've done a pretty bad job of him, in my view. Um, his ball striking was poor. He was a big, strong boy, but he didn't know how to play squash. No idea. Uh, his swing did he changing. Everything was just bashed hard and low and flat. Um, couldn't play a drop shot. Um, so there's a lot of work in George. Um, 
But he's a, he's a natural talent, an intelligent squash player. He's a highly yeah. intelligent squash player. No, I, like, I really like watching him play lately. He he's been uh, like you said. He's he he's got the whole package now. He's strong. He's fit. Yeah, he's fast. He's, he's, he's got great shots. Mentally, he's got to come together. I mean, he's got the lot. I mean, forty months ago, he was in a lot of trouble. Um, and probably one of the best things I've done as a coach was was to give him his confidence back, both not just on the court but off the court. Really, I mean, he was almost washed up a little bit. Really. He'd had a ban. He'd been to Manchester for a year. Um, England squash had built an academy in Manchester and that just failed miserably. Didn't really work. Um, and it was the wrong thing for George in hindsight. And he got worse in a year, which is hard to do when you're 21 years old. Um, I didn't have as much influence on him. I was still seeing him, but he wasn't working hard enough. He'd probably got a bit lazy. He then had a ban. And he was in a mess, really, um, mentally and physically. And so building him back up. And, you know, that was a period I put my arm around the loss, you know, and, I think if I hadn't done that, we might be talking about George now. Um, he could have stopped playing. I mean, I had a long conversation with his dad one day. And, you know, George has lost his confidence. And, you know, he's one of those guys, when he's good, he's brilliant. But um, everyone needs an arm around him sometimes. And people wouldn't think that with George. Um, but he's a great lad. He really is. He's a, he's a fantastic character. And he's good for the game. He's the sort of character we need in the game. Oh, yeah. We want him to play. And there's not enough people like George. Um, and he play, he's actually very fair. Um, yeah. You know, he'll never, he'll never pick up a double bounce on purpose. Um, you know, he's had a few issues on court, but he's a he's a very fair player, no, for um, sure. and he just wants to play. He just wants to play, and people want to watch him play as well, and yeah, they relate he, to him. Uh, he just he plays the ball. He doesn't he he'll play through interference sometimes as well, just to play the ball. He, he's not looking for for strokes or lets or anything like yeah. that. Great to watch. Yeah, he is great to watch. He's exciting. Um, I mean, there's a lot of improvements. I mean, people say how well he's done, and I'm sort of disappointed because I think he should be where Joel is now. You know, yeah. if he'd done the right things the last two years, he'd be top 20 now. Yeah. Um, you know, they just, them brilliantly. He just needs that one or two, a couple of big wins to give him uh, the confidence, doesn't he? Yeah, he's capable of that. I mean, um, I'm not sure what he's ranked now, but he's, he's up there at 40 or something, isn't he? Or whatever he is. Yeah, 40, and, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah 38. 42. 38. Yeah. 38 new ranking, but I mean, you know, it's. He might be quite pleased with that, and other people will be pleased with that, but I'm not pleased with that. That's not where George should be. Um, he should have been, you know, around that 20 level challenge, those top 16 guys now. And, you know, before you know it, it's, you know, life can pass you by, and it's another two years, and George all of a sudden is 24, 25. So you've got to do it now. So George knows that, and he's working very hard. He's working with some different yeah. people, um, he's doing some different things, and he's working very hard. And I really hope that he fulfills the promise he's got. But everyone, you know, everyone in the academy loves him, they, they all like George. Everyone yeah. gets on well with him, you know. You think SJ and George are different characters; they get on really well. Yeah. You know, he makes him laugh. I'm sure he, she probably makes him laugh. But um, they actually get on well together. You know, they go on court together, and it all works well. And then there's a uh, Joel who who made some huge inroads this year, and he's uh, arguably, I mean, he he, he could you, you could find him in in the top twenty, in the top ten at some point in the near future. Well, he's 24 now, Jerry. Um, if he'd beaten Deck James in Hong Kong, which he should have done, um, with a decent referee, he'd have um, he'd have been top 20. Yeah, that that was a bit um, controversial. Uh, uh, that that one. Well, it wasn't controversial. It was just wrong. I mean, the guy did a terrible job, and that was it. But, uh, yeah. There's no point talking about that. That's gone, and I'm not one to complain about that sort of stuff. But uh, it was a shame. But, um, yeah, Joel's been amazing, really. I mean, it's he's an interesting one, Joel. Again, when I first saw him, he, he obviously wasn't very good. I mean. He couldn't hit a drop shot, he couldn't hit a lob, couldn't hit a boast. And his length wasn't very good either, so didn't have much going for him, really. Um, and a lot of people said, look, this guy's never going to be any good. But I just watched him play, and the guy did not make a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. He had no real idea what he's doing on structure and stuff. And there's a few little things that he changed his swing and things, but 
it wasn't too bad. And I just thought, he just, he just had this incredible determination, Jerry. Um, mm. He didn't want to lose a point and he just didn't make an unforced error. And I just thought to myself, I can get this guy, hit the ball better and some structure and playing how I want him to play. This guy could be a great player. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of people said, you know, plenty of people said to me, he's got no chance in him. He'll never be any good. Um, but I always believe the right help and guidance, he can become a great player. Just need to point in that right direction. Um, and mentally, he was then, even then, five years, I mean, he's 350 the world, and I took him on or something. He was hopeless, really. Um, but he, you know, he mentally, he was just so tough. Yeah. And you know, now he's one of the toughest players out there. Well, I think, I mean, watching him play uh, the last few times, there's not, I don't think there's anyone he's, he wouldn't give uh, trouble to uh, anyone in the top 10. He's going to give everybody trouble. And uh, soon he'll, I mean, with, with the game that he has, he'll be able to beat, beat these guys. Yeah, I should imagine any, any top 10 player now, all those top eight guys that see, they're looking at the draw. And the one person they don't see outside of that top 10 is possibly Joel Macon. Because um, they know they're not coming off that court in, in, in less than an hour. Um, yeah. Simple as that. I mean, occasionally that might happen, of course. But um, generally, every single rally is going to be tough. I mean, you look at his recent matches and they've just been brutal. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter who he's played, he's not intimidated. And that's the great thing I say with Joel. When I first started him, you know, we'd practice drop shots and they'd be hitting the cut line. They were awful. But then I'd gone with someone else. I'd turn around and Joel's another court. He'd gone there for an hour practicing his drop shot. And it was just relentless. It was just, again, day in, day out. And it wasn't just, you know, for show. He was doing that in the evening, he was doing it in the afternoon, he was doing it all the time. And he had this amazing work ethic that he just forced himself to be good. You, you meet people like that sometimes. Um, it reminded me a little bit of someone like Jonah and, you know, that's an intentional Peter Marshall, you know, in our day, um, who just practiced and practiced and worked and worked and they sort of made themselves good. And I just always had that faith in his ability. Um, and he's also got a lot of talents. People look at him as a role yeah. or a retriever, but that's not true at all. He's got a lot of ability. Um, well, he's got a great offensive He has a great uh, offensive game. Yeah, I mean, you know, he can attack, he can defend, and, you know, there's a lot of skill in defending the ball, getting the ball back tight. He's way and it, just, it seems to me, too, he's, just, he's very physically, uh, very, it's natural, he's naturally strong. So whatever he's doing, I think it's just building yeah. on the strength that he already has. I mean, look, the big improvement's going to come in his actual squash. Um, yeah. Physically, he can't get that much better, of course, and a little bit smoother, and we've worked on that. And he's definitely got a lot more balance than the ball, so he's now getting onto the ball and has two or three options, which is very important for someone like Joel. Before, it was always a big lunge, and you could sort of use quite easy to read. You can see what he's going to do, whereas now you, he gets onto it, he's got a very good body drop, he's got a good backhand drop. Forehand isn't bad, and he can do all sorts of things. He can boast the ball. There's nothing he can't do now. Um, so I can really see him, you know, he's just beaten the world in one, world in six. Um, so if you can beat the world in one, you can beat anybody, can't you? Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, now you alluded to uh, the match that he had with uh, with jo with a uh, with Declan uh, James, I think, just a short while ago. Uh, I'd like to get your your take on the apparent sort of rule changes with respect to let rulings and uh, and also the success uh, of the video review system. Just in terms of officiating, uh, what's your take on how things are are right now today in the PSA officiating? I mean, look, I, I think um, it was interesting, actually. I was watching a, a match with um, Ryan Buskelly, um the other day, watching Chris Dittmore play Jansha, and uh, there's just, there were just a lot more um, lets that were given then, um, without a doubt, and some of them shouldn't be lets. No doubt at all about that. There was too many lets, but I, I think we've almost swung the other way now. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's just a simple let, and to me, there's too many catch-22 situations. situations. Um, if you don't take a direct line the ball and go round slightly, it's obviously no let. You don't make too much effort. You go through the player, um, you get a conduct warning and you get a no let. You know? So sometimes the guy's in the way, you want to play the ball and he's there and you knock him. You shouldn't be a disadvantage to me 
from playing a ball because the other person's knocked you off and then having to play it. They say, well, you, should have, you could have played it. They're quite right. They, you could have played the ball, but you're off balance and you've been knocked out. So the other guy's going to advantage by knocking off balance um, and making you play the ball. And that, to me, is an issue. Um, you know, so I think players will always use this. Whatever the rule is, the player's going to use it. They clever a lot of these players and they'll use it. Um, but I do think there should be just some simple lets where you say, right, well, that's just let. And that's where these guys haven't played um, the game. They don't always understand that. And it, it's a really tough job. And there are grey areas. You know, we have lets, no lets and strokes. Um, and there are some grey areas that are in between. They're tough decisions. But I think too many times get it wrong. Um, yeah, there seems to be a lot more of the, especially the, that no, the no let decision. And uh, I, don't, I don't quite get it. Uh, like you said, uh, there seem to be a lot more of those these days as compared to the past where it's sure. relatively, uh, you know, routine interference. Yes, let. Yeah. It's just a let. I mean, look, there's, there's far too many no lets. I mean, there's some shocking no lets. I just can't believe it. And, you know, we have the video, uh, video review system and that solved a lot of problems. Um, but I think there's a, there's a huge inconsistency um, there's obviously a huge inconsistency with the court that has a review system and doesn't have a review system by the way um, and that's a financial situation I get that so if Joel had a review system playing deck in Hong Kong I'm pretty sure I mean I haven't you know I've only spoke to people about the match yeah. they said it was horrific I mean Joel had a clear stroke and was given a low less and the other no level match ball and they, I mean I spoke to Dave Evans a few other people who are, who are good judges and know the situation um, and they said it was absolutely appalling uh, this guy yeah, it seems um, to me like, like, like in that scenario, that's first round match. You got half the guys with the op, with the availability of the video review system. And then the other guys, half the half of the players don't have it. And there, you know, for Joel, unfortunately, he didn't have the luxury. He could have gone on. Yeah, the- I, look, I understand that, Jerry. Though I mean, we we just can't afford to have a video review system every court. It's simple as that. So we can't complain about that. We just need to make the refereeing standard better. I mean, as you said, it's just a simple let sometimes. But I mean, there's several other things as well. It's um, the turning rule. This new turning rule. I don't like that at all. When a player hits really wide, um, wide to the front left, for example, hits the side wall, comes back out to the back door and past the back door, the other player just goes to play the shot and he gets a stroke, and the other guy's almost now got their backside on the on the left left hand wall. Um, and I've noticed, I mean, I shouldn't mention names, but Ali Frags used that. I remember, I think, um, first game against um, Tarek Moman. He just got a stroke. It was just ridiculous. I mean, Tarek was completely clear of the ball. Tarek's used and he's got, he's got to use it to his advantage. And people will. There's a couple of players using that to their advantage. Um, and I just think that should be at the referee's discretion. If a guy's getting the way there, and okay, give a stroke, but don't just make it ridiculous. And that's, that's a crazy rule. Um, the other thing with the video review I meant to say, by the way, was that I think it solved a lot of problems, but um, I don't like the re- video review guy sitting next to the commentators or hearing the original decision. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, they should be, they should be uh, separated from that. And normally they're not. Generally they're not. I mean, obviously, if you've got, whoever it is, Joey and PJ, saying, well, that's a disgrace, that's never let. I mean, that's going to influence the guy sitting next to them. Now, it might influence them and he thinks, oh, what's stuff you want to go the other way? Or it might influence them and say, well, a bit intimidated. So, well, yes, of course, I have to give you no let now they're going to sort of glare at me so they, but they should they shouldn't know that's uh, um what they're saying and they also shouldn't know their decision because your mate is the referee which they all are mates and he's saying it's a no let the chances are you more often not you don't want to stick up with your mate so they shouldn't be have a privy to that information i don't think of what the original result is hmm. um because you see some shockers really with that um and the other thing is i think i don't like the attitude of the referees uh, these days uh jerry yeah um i think they're Far too many are rude, they're condescending, and they treat the players like naughty kids. Um, I mean, not only is someone like John Messerello, a poor referee, he's also rude and trucking when he speaks to the players, and they don't like it. You know, they just want some respect. It's a two-way thing. I think we should respect the referees, and I think the respect of the referee should respect the players. 
you know, the ref, the match should be free flowing because that's what we want. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the, uh, it was at the, uh, the, the super series final in Dubai last, uh, the last time around I was there and, uh, Camille Serum was playing, um, Laura Macera. I forget who she was playing, but it was at mat, like near match ball and the, the third best, it was best three third game. And she opened the door and then, as a result of opening the door, she lost the point and gave match ball to her opponent. All she wanted to do was she couldn't hear. Well, to me, I had the same thing with James Warshop in um, Dubai. And poor James, and the referee in Dubai, obviously, at that point, was, it was in the Opera House. It was a long way back, uh, Jerry. And James couldn't hear it. Um, and he just simply couldn't hear it. He just wanted to hear it. So why shouldn't they open the door? I mean, again, this is where a referee should use their discretion. Yeah. If a player is using it, it's time waste given the point against it. But someone like Camille there um, or James is a general sort of situation they can't hear and they just want an explanation. Why should they, they get the explanation? If, they if the player then carries on complaining, award a conduct point against them. If they say, okay, that's fine, accept the decision. And referees will get it wrong and they'll get some right. That's fine. People, players will accept that. But as long as there's an explanation, that's, that's what I think. And we all would have, and sometimes we, me and you watch a match and we might, you might think the ball's up, I might think it's down. And, you know, you have to accept that. Um, and players will accept that, but they just want an explanation uh, of what's happening. And I, again, I think that thing with the, the open the door is a ridiculous rule, absolutely crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. As long as they should use their discretion. I mean, I also, I, I can't stand silly things refereeing. I mean, there's that Aussie guy, we're going back to him again, uh, Nathan Turnbull. You know, he thinks he's smarter. I was calling Fra Ali Frag out for two footfalls. You know, it's six yeah. eight in the first, first game, the Hong Kong Open, a major thing. It's a, it's a great match, critical point, six eight, footfalls. You know, Frag obviously lost his head a little bit. He's gone nine six down, and that's huge against someone like Mohammed. Yeah. You know, he was playing fantastically well. Was all, yeah, Mohammed's already playing well. He didn't need anything else. Uh, he was absolutely in the zone, Mohammed. You know, he was yeah. absolutely honest, and Frag was desperately trying to get into the match. He was trying to defend. He was trying to get some balls back. He just got a bit of momentum, and all of a sudden, he lost all momentum. It's a critical point, and he's had a point award against him. I mean, to me, if he thinks Frag's foot faulting. Either warn him, say, give him a little warning, say, look, I think you might be sliding over slightly, just watch your foot, or, or even a quiet word in his ear before the match. Say, look, yeah. I've noticed your foot faulting a few times. Don't do it at 6 8 in the first game. It's not about Nathan Turnbull, it's about Ali Farag and Hamid El Shabagi playing the final Hong Kong Open. I don't want it to be about the referee, I want us to have a clean match. You know, every, the spectators enjoying it, the TV audience enjoying it, um, and getting on with the game. I don't want to see foot faults in there. You know, I might be wrong, but that's how I see it. Yeah, uh, definitely. I agree with you 1,000% uh, there. Now, um, I just li I'd like to ask you this question, Rob. Uh, the, obviously, uh, you've got a great reputation as a coach, and uh, you've probably got several you know, pl you know, players from juniors, uh, pros from around the world who'd love to join your academy. Uh, so ov obviously, you have guiding principles in terms of uh, the types of players that you let in and your expectations once they're in. So what would they be, uh, for, for players out there listening who might be interested in potentially at some point joining your academy? I mean, look, it's, it's, it's always difficult, that, because there's no sort of set hard and fast rule, Jerry. I mean, I, I think I wrote a list on uh, Squash Stories some time ago about what I expect to see in a player, um, which a lot of people looked at, and there's probably sort of 30 points about what I expect a player to be able to do. But, I mean, look, first and most importantly, um, I have to like them. You know, I have to get on with them, and they have to fit in the group. Um, I've got some very strong characters, individuals, and you have to get the right balance. And there's too many sort of coaches and groups and England squads and different academies I see, and you just have people that don't fit together. Because you've got to, these guys got to work together day in day out. Um, it's like any team, you know. And it's an individual sport, but they're working together. 
So it's really important that, that I like them, they go on with me, because um, I'm pretty sort of tough with people. Um, you know, so they've got to be able to take that. Um, but I'm always very honest with my players. Um, they respect that for some things. But I mean, I won't just say, well, that's no good. I'll tell them, I'll say, look, why I think it could be, how it could be done better. Because there's no point just being, saying that's no good and then leaving it at that. You've got to say, well, I think that's not as good as it could be. And this is how you do it better. And I'll show them. Um, so, I mean, that's really important. I mean, the last, or the last, um, the last month, so I've had four, four players approach me. So every month I'm getting players approaching um, a couple of those top 100. So decent players, but we're, we're pretty much at full capacity. Yeah. Um, but what I'm really looking for is, besides obviously liking, is that sort of work ethic. Um, work ethic, attitude, and a desire. Um, if that's missing, it just isn't going to work. And you can see that in people. You know, it's like with Joel, I said you talked about Joel, but George, SJ, um, the ones that are good, they just have that work ethic, that desire, and that intensity. Um, I've got no interest in some lazy, talented guy who's going to put the work in. Waste of time. I get plenty of those talking to me. Um, and I put an enormous amount of effort into my players. Um, so I expect it back. You know, if I'm, I'm doing 50 hours a week on squash and watching sleep, you know, I was up last week watching yesterday at four in the morning, sending messages between games, and I've got 10 players I'm doing that for. So I'm in, the, you know, a couple of days last week, I've got two hours sleep. If I only put that sort of effort in, I expect the same effort back to my players. Is it, uh, sorry, Rob, is it, just, is it just you at the academy, or do you have any other uh, coaches that work it's, with it's you? basically just me. Um, I've yep. got a guy called, um, I have an SNC coach who's fantastic, a guy called Rob Norman who's been brilliant. Um, and he does a, and you know, I'm one of these guys that there's no point me doing that, so I don't understand it as I should do. Um, and that's not my area of expertise, so I, I get somebody to do that, and he's been incredibly helpful. Uh, Rob Norman, um, he's the actual uh, England swimming coach, SNC coach, and he's brilliant. Oh. He's worked in tennis, okay, and through tennis. Um, he's a high performance guy, um, and the players love him. And the thing I like about him is, is most stuff he does is on court rather than a lot of these guys I find in the gym and lifting weights and it's a program, one fit program fits all. And that's certainly something that someone like England Swash used to do. And I had players going up there and it's just the same program from all. And I just try and tailor everything for my players individually. Um, but going back to what I'm looking for, I mean, after I've looked for all those other sort of values and stuff, I, I really then look at their ability and the circumstances and the sort of person they are really. And if they're the sort of person I want to help. Um, I'll always try and help anybody to a certain extent. But I mean, there's certain people you really want to help, you know, um, depending on their circumstances, the sort of people they are. And obviously, you look at a bit of, I've got people who are more talented than others. Um, and it's not all about taking the best players sometimes. Sometimes you just want to help people, you think, well, they deserve a chance and give them a chance. It might not work out, but I think there's certain, certain people who just deserve a chance to prove what they can do. And I'll also ask the existing players you've got if they want that person in the squad, because that's important. So I have their input. It's not just about me, um, it's got to be someone they think can improve what we've got or help in some way. And it might not be on the court, Jerry. It might be off the court. It might be a great runner. It might be a good trainer. It might be a comedian. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can bring value to a, to a squad situation. Um, so, yeah, so it's great. Yeah. Now, um, now you've obviously, uh, maybe as a player and obviously uh, as a coach as well, uh, have experienced uh, England squash and uh, you've seen over the, the last few years anyways how things are developing. What's your, uh, what's your take on the state of uh, squash in England at the moment, the, the juniors coming through and, and the current level of, uh, of professional players and how uh, in your estimation is uh, squash England, I guess, is it squash or England squash uh, handling things uh, these days? It's a difficult question. It's something that people always ask and I think um, squashing and playing wise in the transition period is certainly a transitional period I mean Nick's just retired 
Um, James is in the twilight of his career. I think he'd be probably admit that himself. He's, I'm sure, hope he's got a good few years left. Um, Selby's in the twilight of his career, but yeah, nice to see him just win the uh, guitar tournament. Yep. And of course, Pete Bark retired. So we had four exceptional players there. Um, so we've been spoiled really for 10 years. Um, James is an unbelievable junior. Nick was obviously very good. And all these guys had great juniors career, Barker and Selby. Um, good players where Daryl went to university and stuff. So we have been very sports. I mean, we talk about resurgence. I don't think it is a resurgence. We got our best player now is, is Step James, who's 16. He would have been our fifth best player not long ago. Um, so, and he's done really well. Don't get me wrong, he's done really well. Um, he's worked hard. I saw him the other day. I was impressed. Um, he's getting good results. He's working hard. And, you know, hopefully he'll continue to progress. But then there's a bit of a drop. Um, and, we, you know, we're down to other players that are a little bit older. But we have got the people like George coming through, Charlie Lee. Um, there's a few other juniors as well. And we've got some great young ones coming through. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Sam Todd springs to mind. He's exceptional. Um, he's as good as anybody I've seen that age virtually. Um, the kid called Jonah Bryant. We've got some young girls with Katie. So we've got some, there's some real talents, you know, Lucy Tamal. There's, there's all sorts of young players coming through. So that, that the future, I think, in three years could look a lot brighter. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything but, uh, that, that England squash has to do, in your, in your opinion, to set them down the right road? I think they can do the best they can. Um, yeah. But ultimately, like anything, I think England squash will probably do what's best for England squash. Um, the difference with themselves is that all I care about is my players. You know, I will do exactly what's best for George Parker. I couldn't give two hoots about what England squash thing is best for him, really. I will do what's best for George. And the same with all my players. Whereas England squash, ultimately... They want George to play for England. They want him to do such and such, jump through a few hoops. Um, same with all my players. And they have to tick, tick boxes. I don't tick any boxes under my own box. And that's to help the players. Mm -hmm. So I, I think England squash are, are trying. They've just employed Nick Matthew, which is obviously a good move. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's great that we're sort of keeping people's country. There's not a brain drain of coaches going abroad, which has happened for years and years now. Um, so someone like Nick being involved. I mean, I think Pete Barker did a little bit, although sadly he left. Um, you know, who knows what, hopefully James has been in squads. Um, and that's fantastic, you know, someone like James' brain being used. So I think they are trying. Um, I, I felt personally that um, the problems we've got now over the last four or five years, the lack of juniors coming through, was it was a legacy of the coaching that went on before, from sort of, you know, eight, ten years ago. We didn't spend enough time uh, with the juniors, um, cultivating good juniors, getting talented kids playing, and, and this sort of thing. So that's why we're in the situation now. And England squash at one point probably had a bit of money, wasted it. Um, and now they're sad in a situation where they haven't got as much money. And in my eyes, they're probably doing a better job, but they haven't got the mm. funds necessary to always support the players as, as, as well as they could have done. Um, but I mean, look, Dave Campbell's a great guy. He's a good national coach. Um, you know, I speak to him regularly. He talks to me about my players. Um, so there's good communication there. Lee Drew. Um, you know, so got I guess some, you, you're, all, you're, in, you're in fairly uh, frequent communication with them, given who, who you're coaching. To a certain extent, I mean, look, I sort of boss it, to, you know, because I'm, I'm in charge of my players. And I do what I want, and I, I listen to their advice, and they, they often bring me up for advice. Um, so it's a two-way thing. It's a good communication process, um, which is important. Um, so, yeah, it, it works well. I mean, some, they've had some people who just aren't good enough, um, and that's probably because they can't afford to get the best people. Um, whereas other sports, such as tennis, they can probably the top coaches, and we just can't do that. That's why people have historically gone abroad. Mm -hmm. um, and aren't working in the squash and that's saying that any governing body you know all these all these countries have suffered from that which isn't the finance available to get people coaching the juniors and stuff and also I think at the lower level grassroots level the coaching just isn't good enough um, I really do I mean there's, there's a lot of squads going on they just there's too, there's too much too many of them it's just not the quality isn't good enough um, but that's another matter right right 
Well, uh, Rob, I'd like to, uh, first of all, I just want to th uh, thank you uh, a few weeks. I think it was two weeks ago you shared the fact that you were coming on to the podcast at that point, and I think it was going to happen during that week, but you, uh, I think you had the flu, and then we rescheduled it. But that spawned dozens and dozens of uh, questions on Facebook, uh, which uh, I have to thank you for. for uh, one question, uh, and I'm not sure, who, I think it might have been Jamie Maddox uh, who asked this question. He wants to know... Uh, what was the most important win or most memorable, I guess, win of your own playing career? And then uh, that of uh, the players that you coach. Yeah, well, I suppose at this point, I should give a shout out to Jamie Maddox because I mean, I've met Jamie, but, um, you know, he's got over 10,000 people in interested in that group squash stories on, uh, <laughs> on Facebook. And are you, are you, are you a member of the community, uh, Rob, of squash stories? I am. Yeah. I look at yeah, yeah. There's some, there's some, there's some great stuff on there. there. some great, some great tradition on there. There's there's mom stuff. There's all sorts. You know, he's a big fan of squash. I mean, he's he's done us an amazing job. I mean, they got uh, some old pictures of you on there too. Yeah, I've I've tried to have all those removed and destroyed, uh, Jerry. <laughs> um, sadly, there's there's one wearing was he wearing some nappies in the court the other day, which was horrendous, um, which I was very displeased about. But yeah. I mean, look, he, he, the guy does a fantastic job. He's got a great sense of humour. Sometimes people take these things a bit too seriously, in my view, and they get all a little bit upset and a bit wound up by it. Um, and you need to keep a sense of humor when you're playing squash or when you're reading these things. And, and Jamie's brilliant. I mean, he's got people interested and he's, he creates topics and, that are very yep. interesting for people. So he does a great job. Um, well, for sure. I mean, he, he's got a lot of history on there as well. He, he, he breaks out the old draws from back in the 80s and, you know, good to Yeah, he's extraordinary. I, I don't know where he gets some of his uh, information from, but he's got some great pictures um, and he's got some great information and he's, 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 a, he's just a squash fan. You know, and there's a lot of people out there like Jamie. Too. We've got a great sport, and he does. A, we don't publicise it enough, really. No, for sure. like him, he, he brings that to attention to the media. And if we had another hundred Jamie Maddoxes, we'd be a lot better off in the UK and worldwide, really. So, and there's a lot of ex-players on there. I mean, there'll be a lot of players that read that. They, they yeah. admit to reading it, but um, they'll be reading. Yeah, lots of players it. on there. Sure. Tristan, Tristan Nancaro's on there. Yeah, well, he's yeah, he's a character. I actually shared a house with um, Tristan for a little period of time in Western Superman. That was uh, absolute chaos, and I couldn't tell any stories from that. So okay. Got to get a story out of you. But. <laughs> but there'll be a lot of players on there. I mean, there'll be a lot of players listening to this who won't admit to listening to it, but just to see not mention them at all. But, um, but I think we digress. Your, your most memorable win, uh, Rob? Uh, most memorable win. I mean... That's tough. And the fact that I actually think about it shows I, I kind of had many memorable wins. Um, I'm not one of those guys that sort of mentions a lot of sort of wins I had, really. Um, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be quite a few of the top guys. I'd probably be everyone up to about number eight in the world at some stage. Um, I mean, it's, it's, but I mean, most people who got to my ranking probably did. I was talking to Ryan Cascali the other day and he'd beaten everyone in the top ten apart from one player. Um, I think a win that stands out was I beat a guy called Mark McLean. I think he was about ten or nine in the world. He was pretty good. Um, I beat him 9-love, 9-love, 9-1 in the uh, wow. British 23 quarterfinals, which was a big tournament. Um, and it's one of those rare occasions, when, I'm, not because of the results so much, but just one of those rare occasions where I felt like I played almost perfect squash, you know, perfect length, um, winning straight drop, winning cross, whatever it was, whatever I did, I was thinking just a perfect length. It was just, it was textbook sort of squash as far as um, nothing flashy, but just a quality sort of performance. And it doesn't happen very often. I'm, I'm sure any player you talk to will talk about, you can complete in that zone whether it be cricket and you score a century and you just, the ball just seems, it speeds the hit and wherever you put it, it just goes perfectly. And I had a few occasions like that. I, I did beat a few people quite easy in my career, um, but I also lost a few people very easily, of course. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I'm probably, I, I remember one of my main losses, I lost to Brett Martin 3 2 in the British, uh, in the US Open quarter final. That's, um, that's, that's a decent result, though. So, yeah, I remember, I remember that match because um, obviously it would have been semi US Open to play Janch, I think it was, which would have been nice. Um, so you tend to remember your losses. I mean, I was one of those yeah. guys that really was sort of a perfectionist and winning didn't bother me that much. I didn't get too high about winning, but I hated losing. I hated losing a lot more than I enjoyed winning. So I didn't get that much satisfaction. There's always another tournament. And I was a bit of a perfectionist, really, too much perfectionist. And that's been the same in my gambling. I get absolutely zero satisfaction winning a lot of money. Um, yeah. But I can't stand losing a lot of money. Um, hate it, and that's probably what's driven me on. Really, and made me quite good at these things. Yeah, even for um, me, I mean, my my uh, you know, unillustrious uh, squash career. Uh, I remember the losses more than the wins. Yeah, I mean, I met Ross Norman um, a few years back, and he came up to me, sort of came running up to me, and he talked to me, and he, he just was, oh yeah, remember when you beat me in the Austrian Open? Um, and Ross was a fantastic player, obviously, and I, I couldn't even remember beating him, to be quite honest. Um, which was sorry, was that? Did Ross, you say Ross Norman? Ross Norman, yeah. Um, okay. I beat in the Austrian Open or something, and he remembered the match and you know the rallies and stuff, and I couldn't remember playing him in it. You know, so it's crazy, <laughs> really. But I mean, yeah. obviously, I wasn't that bothered. Um, but I remember I can I could reel off about fifty matches I lost, and something happened. Um, so it's much easier to recall those losses because it's just a much more painful memory. Yeah, yeah. And when you, have, you know, I'm not one of these guys. Obviously, when I didn't win any major tournaments, I won a lot of tournaments, but they're all small tournaments. So I'll never forget, uh, 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 for me, anyway, uh, the one match I never forget, it, it was the, uh, do you know Newfoundland? Yeah, yeah of course. Newfoundland. Okay, I played in the Newfoundland Open final, and it was uh, two all. Set, I think I was, I was down 6-5, and I'd won the rally, but my it, eye guards are mandatory in that province. So my yeah. eye guards fell off, and I caught them. Uh, but the referee stopped the rally. I, I'd won the point, sorry. I won that point, but lost the point because my eye guards weren't on. Yeah, that sounds desperate lucky, especially you, you obviously formed a great catch there as well. Yeah, yeah. Caught so the eye guards, slipped them back on. I was pissed. Other than that one move, you'd be like, okay. Yeah, but uh, we, we digress again. You're, and amongst your players, uh, you mentioned it earlier, I think uh, SJ Perry had a great win uh, this year, uh, recently, actually. Um, I mean, look, I mean, I guess the players are easy. I mean, SJ, I mean, they're beating Shabidi World and One, and obviously Joel. To get those two beat the World and One within four weeks of each other was, you know, unbelievable. That was a great feeling as a coach. I mean, SJ, I didn't expect it, but I sort of expect her to beat these girls, and I know she can, she's capable, um, but it's still great. And I remember particularly SJ beating Shabidi in Dubai, actually, um, a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I was actually there, and she she lost the first, which was playing great. I went between games. A lot, a lot of people, when someone loses a game, they actually try and do something different or change. And I just said, look, SJ, you're playing great. Just stick to the game plan, and if you can just get it 2% better, you're going to win this match. And she won. So that was a really nice feeling. Um, just sort of getting it right between games and motivating her. And you know, seeing her playing so well was really, really satisfying. Um, is that a, is that a template that you, uh, that you used for, for the more recent uh, win? or? Uh... Yeah, there was certain look I don't because I mean look I, I go through every player in the top ten, every single player has got weaknesses, Gary. Every player. Um yeah. it doesn't matter how big or small, but there, there are weaknesses in every single player and I've dissected those, I've looked at them and my players know what I think about certain players. Um but I've looked at them very closely and it might be a little footwork thing, it might be front left, they go in on the wrong foot, it, whatever it might be, there might be weak high, backhand or there's some simple stuff and there's some actually some subtle stuff. But if you can and obviously the difficulty is performing uh, executing a game plan. Um, well enough I mean it's easy giving people a game plan I can give it them if they can't execute it um, they're going to struggle um, but when you actually see a player and they, they play the sort of how you want them to play and the structure that you like to play and they hit the ball how you want them to hit the ball 
it's very satisfying, you know. So to see Joel, and we'll go back to Joel now, his win over Mohammed. Um, he had a game plan, um, which is a very clear game plan, and Joel was brilliant, you know. I mean, obviously, all the credit to Joel. You know, that was five years of hard work, and Mohammed, you know, straight away I'll say that he wasn't at his best 100% because he'd come out from America, and it was a good time to play him. Um, but Joel was brilliant, so that was incredibly satisfying. But I've had just as much satisfaction seeing Joel, you know, two years ago beat someone who was 50 in the world. Um, you know, whether it be whoever it was, um, I got a lot of satisfaction out of him beating uh, Rodriguez because again, it was a very different matchup from yeah. uh, Mohammed. He had a very different game plan, um, which I won't go into detail with. A completely different game plan to play Rodriguez, and again, he executed it brilliantly. And you know, to, to beat the world number one and number six so close together. Was uh, it was amazing for Joel, really. Uh, it really was. So very satisfying as a coach. But I also get as much satisfaction seeing one of my lower ranked players beat somebody and showing improvement. You know, whether that be, you know, Charlie Lee or you know Jas Hutton or Katie, whoever it is. Um, it's very satisfying seeing your players do well and just getting the best out of themselves. And sometimes more than they thought possible. If you're, if you're not at the venue, Rob, let's say, you know, uh, Joel's playing someone in uh, uh, Qatar and you're in England. Uh, in between games, do you guys communicate at all, or is that in order to get your? We do, yeah. I always do. I mean, I um, I never speak on the phone, um, but I always send the messages between games. So I, any match that's on live, I'm watching. Simple yeah. as that. Um, unless there's um, you know, unless there's been a bomb in the house, I mean, we've got no internet, something's happened. I'm watching that match, and I'll be sending the messages between games, and it'll be simple messages to the point, and it's just helpful sometimes the players just to. And it might be to reiterate what we said, or it might be just to change something. Because sometimes your game plan doesn't work, so you've got to be prepared to change it and do something different, throw something else in the mix. So, and obviously, there's a lot of players doing that. Um, but that keeps you pretty busy with sort of 10, 11 players, sending them game plans when you've got, you might have six playing match in a day. So that's, um, and when I do these game plans, I'm obviously, I've always watched their opponent play, and I watch their opponent play a winning match, and I watch their opponent lose, so I can see their strengths and weaknesses. I always do that for every player, um, whereas a lot of people, you know, they don't do that sort of research. And it's those little things, those little 1% to make a difference, Jerry, when you're yep. doing a game plan and helping people. Um, and the players appreciate that thing. They know that makes a difference, that sort of stuff. All right. Uh, another question uh, from a friend of yours, a uh, close friend of yours, uh, and uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but he wanted me to yeah, ask that's you. That's ominous. I haven't got many close friends. <laughs> um, he, he wanted me to ask you uh, about, uh, or he wanted you to talk about Bomber Harris. Okay, Bomber Harris. Um, what do you do that was? Um, Bomber Harris, well, goodness, he was an interesting character. He was probably a, uh, a cross between Attila the Hun and Nurse Ratchet off the one through the cookies nest. Um, <laughs> he was, um, as I say, he was, a, he, was a, he was a great trainer, great motivator. Um, he wasn't really a squash player. I mean, Jonah first met him. Um, he was a, a PTI in the... He's connected uh, to Jonah, is he? Yeah, oh, yeah, he was Jonah's uh, physical coach, really. Okay. Um, so Jonah employed him. Um, I met Bob when I was probably 15, and I used to do two sessions a week with him. Um, and there was what were they like? Brutal, absolutely brutal. I mean, there was nothing too clever about it. It was old-fashioned hard work. Um, and, you know, someone new came down, he basically just broke them physically and mentally, um, which there's nothing clever about it at all. No, but what no. he did, he broke a lot of people, um, but the ones who survived it sort of ended up doing very well. But they were looking back, they were far too hard. Um, there was no sports science attached to it at all. But um, he trained a lot of very, very good players and he got you very, very fit, as fit as you could possibly be, and he got you mentally tough. Um, and you were pretty hard. Um, and he was a tough man, very tough man. Um, we all respected him. He was a great trainer. Um, and obviously, Jonah used him, so he, he learned a lot of Jonah just being around Jonah. 
Um, although Bomber didn't know that much about squash, he'd seen Jonah play lots and lots and he'd worked with him. And, you know, I mean, it was, Jonah was pretty tough on Bomber and vice versa. But Jonah, if Jonah, if Bomber had a tough session with Jonah, he took it out on us sort of thing. So we were in for it. But yeah, I did two sessions a week at Bomber. It was, it was an hour, two hours of time. Um, but he trained several people who all, all ended up being very good players. Lights and lights of quartz sprints? Um, more ghosting. I mean, Jonah's never a big one for the court swing. Did a few, but not right. much. It was mainly ghosting, running, um, using this, this horrible medicine ball thing, a lot of circuits. Um, yeah. You know, he was just a tough guy. Um, and even if you're on court, he'd be doing sessions. I remember I'd, I'd put my foot through a door or something and I'd, I was injured. And he just took me up to this hall. We did an hour just on stomach exercise with a medicine ball and throwing a medicine ball at me. Proper sort of rocky <laughs> stuff. Um, and then I had a plaster on my foot and I had a, an indent, which was a pedal marked by plaster on my foot. Um, we had me on a bike. I wasn't meant to be on a bike, obviously, but he had me pedaling. And you know, when I took a plaster back, it was just a massive dent and pedal in there. So he was a bit of a crazy man, but he was—it um, yeah. was good. It was, as a young kid coming through, it was—it um, toughened you up, and it was good. Uh, that's great. Well, uh, shout out to uh, rest in peace. Uh, is he still with us, Bomber? Or no, he's still with us. Yeah, is he? Okay. Germany. All right. Shout yeah. out to Bomber Harris. Probably not a bad place to be, actually. <laughs> Uh, now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, uh, about, uh, you know, arguably or perhaps not even arguably, maybe unquestionably the most talented guy uh, of, his gen- of this generation. Uh, unfortunately, he's not really playing much these days. Uh, Rami uh, Ashur, uh, he's had some, uh, as we all know, some recent health struggles uh, that uh, he's been going through for the past few years. What are your thoughts on, uh, on Rami uh, as a player? Obviously, we, we know how talented he is he is and what he's going through at the moment and, and with respect to uh, maybe perhaps what you, you would advise him to do uh, going forward. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult subject talking about Rami. It's, um, it's painful for him and it's, it's painful for me even talking about it. I mean, the guy's obviously a squash genius. Um, he would have been a superstar in any era of squash. Um, and to me, it's just very, very sad that he's, he's never really fully achieved his potential. Um, which is incredible to think, which he actually has achieved. And yet he's still, we talk about him. I mean, he, he's just missed tournament after tournament after tournament. Um, I just imagine how good it would have been if he'd been 100%. Yeah. I mean, he's actually beaten top 10 players when he's clearly injured. Yeah, and, yeah. and then he doesn't play. I mean, he came back when Sweden last last year. He hadn't played for six months. And he beat Goldshire three love. He beat Rosner three love. And then he beats Mohammed in the final. It's, it's borderline embarrassing, I guess, for those guys. So it's difficult because um, he pitches up on one leg and he wins a world championship. Um, I mean, that was extraordinary when he won the World Championship, beat James and Mohammed. I mean, there's some incredible squash, but one game he was there was he couldn't move properly, could he? No. Mohammed in the final, and it must be frustrating for those guys. But he's just an incredible talent. I mean, he, on his day, he'd have beaten the best players I've ever seen. You know, and I include in that Kang and Janchu, two best players. Yeah. Although I would sort of probably say with ten matches, I'd have backed either of those two as a professional gambler to to win more on average if they played ten times. I just think yeah, I guess, I guess physically uh, he might have. I mean, obviously, with, with the issues that he's had uh, with his health, physically he he probably uh, falter over a number of matches against those guys. It would have been tough for him playing those guys, but I mean, look, the bottom line is he could have improved playing those guys. I mean, we yeah. know all the best of him. And I think because when he's at his best, he'd just be everyone, you know, comfortably. Um, you know, no one really worked out to play him. Um, he exposed weaknesses in, in the other top players. You look at someone like Mohammed or everyone or Nick, you think, well, they, they look invincible. And yet they'd go and play him and he'd make them look average at times, you know, really yeah. average. So there's always someone out there better. But I think that someone like Janja would have got so many balls back against him and wouldn't make an error. It would have been very tough for Rally playing the way he played just to play those days. You know, it's a bit like when someone like Rod Martin beat Janja, you know, you could beat him one in 10. 
But to actually beat um, Jahangir Jangja six out of ten, seven out of ten was just would have been extraordinary. But you can never write Rami off. You know, maybe he would have done. Who knows? I mean, obviously that's my job, sort of comparing these things. I'm pretty good at it. But uh, he is an incredible squash player. Do you think um, we'll see him uh, back, or have we seen the last of him? Look, I've, I've written him off about ten times, and the guy comes back and went to Sweden last year, as I say. So you can never write the guy off. Um, but I mean, obviously it's not looking great, is it? I mean, he keeps putting out a tournament, entering and pulling out. Well, we haven't seen him for a long time now, and it's. But it, I mean, the guide seems to be impossible, so I would never ever write him off. Um, you know, people wrote Federer off a year ago. People wrote Nadal a year, a year ago as well. Yeah. Wrote off Nadal. They both well, came back. And, well, he's still young enough to do it, isn't back. he? Yeah, when you're that good, you can come back any time. And if he got a month's training under his belt, he'd still be, you know, probably one of the best players in the world without a doubt. So, fingers crossed, he will come back. But I'm not sure he will now. Well, we had uh, one last question, and again, uh, I didn't write down who um, who asked it, but uh, he, he he would like to know what pisses you off uh, the most about the pro game as it's played today. Uh, uh, I hope you don't mind answering that question, Rob. No, not at all. I mean, it's uh, we've talked about certain things. Um, you know, I guess we've talked about the referees. That's something that frustrates me um, for the sport, really, and for the players. Um, so we. I won't go on and go about that again. Um, I guess ex-pros posting silly videos that are really terrible on social media and talking nonsense, that annoys me. Um, I see some people who, you know, suppose got a brain just putting up these videos that are just dreadful. And uh, that drives me crackers at this. I wake up in the morning, I see this video that someone put up and you think, what are you doing? And, and then you see them sort of hitting the ball and teaching people how to hit the ball, how they've hit the ball themselves. Um, just see some ridiculous stuff. And these days, some of these guys seem to be sort of social media mad just put far too much information out there and, you know, it doesn't look great, I don't think. Um, but that's, that's, that frustrates me, I guess. Um, people in authority who aren't very good, that annoys me. Uh, I think something you alluded to earlier as well is just the, the sort of the characters in the game aren't uh, quite as, uh, as evident. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do, like you said, uh, with the, the stricter, uh, uh, refereeing that, that's out there now that's sort of taking the character out of the player. Yeah, I think so. I think, look, I think sometimes people have got a bit PC mad, you know, and squash is the same thing. We've got to remember it's, it's, it's an entertainment. It should be fun. Um, I think we need more characters, you know. People like watching me play because they never knew what was going to happen. Um, and be honest, neither did I, Gary. <laughs> um, you know, I could be fantastic, rubbish, rude, funny, all in the same match. I mean, I posted, a, a, I think it was a, about a month ago, I posted this video. It's a, it was Simon Park playing Jonathan Power at the Hong Kong Open 1997. And I forget, it was around 15 minutes into it. Jonah Barrington's actually doing the commentary. And then about 17 minutes in on that video, it was in the fifth game. There were two points in a row where Power, uh, where, where Park got balls back and, or was given a let. And power just went ballistic, and it wasn't one. It wasn't play acting either. He kind of got into the play acting a bit later in his career, but this was like raw, and it was just so everyone loved it. I think we need that emotion because I mean, you know, when someone feels like that, you know, let it out a little bit. I mean, look, there's obviously a line that can't be crossed, and I'm the first old hands up, and I crossed that line a few times. But I mean, you know, when you're not crossing that line, it's good entertainment, and people want to see that emotion. Like you see Dokovic and Murray and. You know, these guys, they're fist pumping and they get into oh, it, yeah. they smash the bucket. Who cares? They probably love to see it. You yeah. know, they want to see some emotion. They don't want to see, like, robots playing. There's too many robots playing that sport. You know, and, uh, there have been some people who've got... Power's brilliant, you know. He was fantastic, an entertainer, a fantastic talent. People love watching it. 
um, and they like watching in those battles with Palmer and with Peter Nickel, and you, know, you get that nice contrast. I mean, at the moment, we've got too many people faceless, um, and we just haven't got those characters. I think it's really important that we sort of encourage that. And I always encourage my players to use their imagination and express themselves. I think a lot of these are suppressed. SJ really that. does a good job of that. She, she's entertaining to watch. People love watching her. You know, she's fantastic. She plays a shot. She's emotional. You know, sometimes that can be a bit of an issue. But I mean, George you know, as well. George is brilliant. You know, he's great yeah. for TV. He's, he's made for TV, really. I mean, again, he crosses that line sometimes, and it's it's very hard when you sort of start walking towards that line to then stop just before it. And as I say, I've been there myself, and it's difficult. And George, you know, I can guarantee in the next few years, George will cross that line a couple of times. But I can also guarantee he's going to be great to watch, and yeah. people want to watch him. You know, Joel, Joel in his own way, you know, he's tough. I mean, he's hard yeah, nails on court. You know, tough as nails. He has his own character. He's still great to watch. You know, I don't care what anyone says. He's, he's fantastic to watch. People love him. You know, that, he's, he's gutsy, he's gritty, and all these different characters. We've got to sell it, sell it to people, we've got to sell it to the media. Um, you know, and that's another thing we can talk about. We can talk about the TV, and, you know, we can talk about junior programs and this sort of stuff. There's all sorts of topics we haven't really talked about yet, but, um, you know, this, these are things we've got to produce these characters and get these people enjoying them and having fun. That's really important, Jerry. I've, there's too many people who don't enjoy playing now. You know, they, they're either doing it for the wrong reasons, um, and I think it's, it's absolutely imperative that kids enjoy it and express themselves. Yeah, yeah. Gulchay's out there too. I mean, when he when he's uh, yeah. yeah when he's out there firing up the crowd, it, it, there's nothing quite like it, is there? Yeah, absolutely amazing. The crowd loves him. I mean, look, yeah, sometimes yeah. he's annoying, sometimes he's great, you know. But again, he's another one that sometimes crosses the line. But I'd always rather watch him play than someone who's just faceless and you know he's pretty dull. Yeah. Well, Rob, uh, I, I think we've covered uh, a lot of ground there. And I just, first of all, I just want to say uh, I want to thank you uh, for spending uh, this time with me uh, today on the podcast. It was really generous of you. And uh, you're doing great work with your team, SJ, George, Joel, and the others. Uh, good luck to them. Good luck to you. And uh, I'd love to have you back on again at some point down the road. No problem. Thank you, Jerry. Enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Take care. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, Rob, thank you so much for uh, for that great podcast. Uh, really good stuff there. Some uh, some interesting squash and uh, backstory stuff about Rob. And I know you guys will will have enjoyed that. Uh, Rob uh, tells it like he sees it, and it was really uh, great to hear his insight on all aspects of the game and also look back uh, at his uh, his backstory, which is as as you know now very interesting so thank you rob for doing that for us on the podcast now um just going forward we've got some real some some good episodes lined up uh over the holiday season so uh, hopefully those uh uh come to fruition for me and uh we get to have those in the next few weeks and also looking forward to this uh, the black ball challenge which is ongoing in uh, in Egypt right now first round matches uh, as i speak uh, just finished watching uh, tom richards win his first round match and uh, there'll be several others to to watch uh, this week so that'll be uh, worth watching that event and uh, everyone i hope you enjoy your squash over the holidays keep on playing otherwise the uh, the Christmas or the holiday pudding uh, will be a little uh, more difficult to take off when you do uh, decide to return to the court two, three times a week. That'll, uh, that'll be enough to keep it off. Anyways, thanks, for everyone, for listening, and uh, enjoy your squash. Goodbye now.